the legendary exchanges between Einstein and Tagore, part conversations organized by Einstein's son-in-law Dmitry Marianov, and part through letters, were brought to life at the Bangalore International Centre. In addition to the transcripts and text, and tone and diction that the performers evoked, the discussants identified several polarities, each throwing light on one or more aspects of the intellectual history of that very important epoch of world history, both scientific and political. Is there reality beyond human consciousness? Is the causal world pervaded by the rules of chance? Is beauty a natural effect or is it a matter of convention? While these are the main undercurrents among the Einstein-Tagore exchanges, the Einstein-Bohr exchanges and later Einstein-Goodell talks appear in the foreground as well. This is a four-part series on the Einstein-Tagore conversations brought to you by the Centre for Contemporary Studies at the Indian Institute of Science. Professor Raghavendra Gadakkar, founder-chair of the Centre for Contemporary Studies, introduces the exchanges, followed by a reading by Sanjeev Gadre and Vijay Sharma from Bangalore Little Theatre. Tagore and Einstein first met in 1926. Their second meeting took place near Berlin in 1930. Tagore was closely following the works of the scientists of his era. It is said that he and Einstein met at least four times during 1930. Dmitry Marinov, who documented these conversations, described Tagore famously as the poet with the head of a thinker and Einstein as the thinker with the head of a poet. The conversation, he added, was as though two planets were engaged in a chat. After he won the Nobel Prize in 1913, Tagore of course became an international celebrity and toured the world visiting many countries. In 1921, during his visit to Germany, he was treated and welcomed as a hero. Tagore's work was remarkably similar to that of Goethe, Maybe this is why he was, so, he was so loved in Germany. Goethe was very interested in science and philosophy and he was also a great poet and author. Tagore was a mystical poet as we all know and philosopher but he was deeply interested in science as well and that is very very moving for scientists like us when we, when we read about his interest in science. The meetings of the two celebrities were a sensation for the media worldwide. An article in New York Times about this is one of the most cited even today. They met for the first time during Tagore's second visit to Germany in mid-1926. They had short exchanges of letters that expressed Einstein's respect for Tagore and they met again in Einstein's house near Berlin on June 14, 1930. This was just after Tagore arrived back from Oxford where he had given the Hibbert lectures that were later published as The Religion of Man. The Oxford lectures might have influenced the topic of their conversation on science and truth. Good evening and welcome to this evening's exploration of interactions between Albert Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore. The Einstein-Tagore exchanges. In 1930, there were at least three more meetings between the two men. Tagore came back from a journey to Moscow that included Einstein's stepdaughter, Margaret Einstein, as one of his traveling companions. She and her husband, Dmitry Marianov, were largely responsible for arranging the meetings and their uh, documentation. There were also several letters exchanged between them. 
The conversation from the second and third meeting are the most read and quoted. We may now go on to select excerpts from them. We begin with Tagore opening the discussion. You've been busy hunting down with mathematics the two ancient entities, time and space, while I've been lecturing in this country on the eternal world of man, the universe of reality. Do you believe in the divine isolated from the world? Not isolated. The infinite personality of man comprehends the universe. There cannot be anything that cannot be subsumed by the human personality. And this proves that the truth of universe is human truth. There are two different conceptions of the, about the nature of the universe. The world as a unity dependent on humanity and the world as a reality independent of the human factor. When our universe is in harmony with man, as eternal, we know it as truth. We feel it as beauty. This is a purely human conception of the universe. The world is a human world. The scientific view of it is also that of the scientific man. Therefore, the world apart from us does not exist. It is a relative world depending for its reality upon our consciousness. There is some standard of reason and enjoyment which gives it truth. The standard of eternal man whose experiences are made possible through our experiences. This is a realization of human entity? Yes, one eternal entity. We have to realize it through our emotions and activities. We realize the supreme man who has no individual limitations through our limitations. Science is concerned with that which is not confined to individuals. It is the impersonal human world of truths. Religion realizes these truths and links them up with our deeper needs. Our individual consciousness of truth gains universal significance. Religion applies values to truth. And we know truth as good through our own harmony with it. Truth then, or beauty, is not independent of man? No, I did not say so. If there was no human beings anymore, the Apollo Belvedere no longer would be beautiful? No. I agree with this conception of beauty, but not with regard to truth. Why not? Truth is realized through men. According to a later account by note-taker Dmitry Marianov, there was a long pause at this point. Then Einstein spoke again very quietly and softly. I cannot prove my conception is right, but that is my religion. Beauty is in the ideal of perfect harmony, which is in the universal being. Truth is the perfect comprehension of universal mind. The individuals approach it through our own mistakes and blunders through our accumulated experience, through our illumined consciousness, how otherwise can we know truth? I cannot prove it, but I believe in the Pythagorean argument that the truth is independent of human beings. It is the problem of the logic of continuity. Truth, which is one with the universal being, must be essentially human. Otherwise, whatever we individuals realize as true 
never can be can be called truth at least the truth which is described as scientific and which can only be reached through the process of logic in other words by an organ of thought which is human according to the indian philosophy there is brahma brahman the absolute truth which cannot be conceived by the isolation of the individual mind or described by words but can be realized only by merging the individual in its infinity but such a truth cannot belong to science the nature of truth which we are discussing is an appearance that is to say what appears to be true to the human mind and therefore is human and may be called maya or illusion it is no illusion of the individual but of the species the species also belongs to a unity to humanity therefore the entire human mind realizes truth the indian and the european mind meet in a common realization the word species is used in german for all human beings as a matter of fact even the apes and the frogs would belong to it the problem is whether the truth is independent of our consciousness what we call truth lies in the rational harmony between the subjective and the, the objective aspects of reality both of which belong to the super personal man we do things with our mind even in our everyday life for which we are not responsible the mind acknowledges realities outside of it independent of it for instance nobody may be in this house yet that table remains where it is yes it remains outside the individual mind but not the universal mind the table is that which is perceptible by some kind of consciousness we possess if nobody were in the house the table would exist all the same but that is already illegitimate from your point of view because we cannot explain what it means that the table is there independently of us our natural point of view in regard to the existence of truth apart from humanity cannot be explained or proved but it is a belief which nobody can lack not even primitive beings we attribute to truth a superhuman objectivity it is indispensable for us this reality which is independent of our existence and our experience and our mind so we cannot say what it means in any case if there be any truths absolutely unrelated to humanity then for us it is absolutely non existing then i am more religious than you are my religion is in the reconciliation of the super personal man the universal spirit in my own individual being and in the second conversation they talked about causality not surprisingly the discussion soon turned towards the topic of music as discussing with dr mendel today the new mathematical discoveries which tell us that in the realm of infinitesimal atoms chance as its play the drama of existence is not absolutely predestined in character the facts that make science tend towards that view do not say goodbye to causality maybe not yet it appears that the idea of causality is not in the elements but that some other force builds up within an organized universe one tries to understand in the higher plane how order is the order is there where the big elements combine and guide existence but in the minute elements this order is not perceptible thus duality is in the depths of existence 
the contradiction of free impulse and the directive will which works upon it and evolves an orderly scheme of things. Modern physics would not say they are contradictory. Cloud looks as one from a distance, but if you see them nearby, they show themselves as disorderly drops of water. I find the parallel in human psychology. Our passions and desires are unruly, but our character subdues these elements into a harmonious whole. Does something similar to this happen in the physical world? Are the elements rebellious, dynamic with individual impulse? And is there a principle in the physical world which dominates them and puts them into an orderly organization? Even the elements are not without statistical order. Elements of radium will always maintain their specific order now and ever onward, just as they have done all along. There is then a statistical order in the elements. Otherwise, the drama of existence would be too desultory. It is a constant harmony of chance and determination which makes it eternally new and living. I believe that whatever we do or live for has its causality. It is good, however, that we cannot see through it. There is in human affairs an element of elasticity also. Some freedom within a small range which is for the expression of our personality. It is like the musical system in India which is not so rigidly fixed in, as in Western music. Our composers give a certain definite outline, a system of melody and rhythmic arrangement. And within a certain limit, the player can improvise upon it. He must be one with the law of that particular melody. And then he can give spontaneous expression to his musical feeling, which within the prescribed regulation. We praise the composer for his genius in creating a foundation along with a superstructure of melodies. But we expect from the player his own skill in the creation of variations of melodic flourish and ornamentation. In creation, we follow the central law of existence. But if we do not cut ourselves adrift from it, we can have sufficient freedom within the limits of our personality for the fullest self-expression. That is possible only when there is a strong artistic tradition in music to guide the people's mind. In Europe, music has come too far away from popular art and popular feeling and has become something like a secret art with conventions and traditions of its own. You have to be absolutely obedient to this too complicated music. In India, the measure of a singer's freedom is in his own creative personality. He can sing the composer's song as his own if he has the power creatively to assert himself in his interactions of the general law of melody which he is given to him interpret. It requires a very high standard of art to realize fully the great idea in the original music so that one can make variations upon it. In our country, the variations are often prescribed. If in our conduct we can follow the law of goodness, we can have real liberty of self-expression. The principle of conduct is there, but the character which makes it true and individual is our creation, our own creation. In our music, there is duality of freedom and prescribed order. Has melody suffered in your music by the imposition of harmony? Sometimes it does suffer very much. 
Sometimes the harmony swallows up the melody altogether. Melody and harmony are like lines and colors in pictures. A simple linear picture may be completely beautiful and the introduction of color may make it vague and insignificant. Yet, color may, by combination with lines, create great pictures so long as it does not smother and destroy their value. It is a beautiful comparison. Line is also much older than color. It seems that your melody is much richer in structure than ours. Japanese music also seems to be so. It is difficult to analyze the effect of Eastern and Western music on our minds. I am deeply moved by the Western music. I feel that it's great, that it is vast in its structure and grand in its composition. Our own music touches me more deeply by its fundamental lyrical appeal. European music is epic in character. It has a broad background and is gothic in its structure. This is a question we Europeans cannot properly answer. We are so used to our own music. We want to know whether our music is a conventional or a fundamental human feeling. Whether to feel consonance and dissonance is natural or a convention which we accept. Somehow, the piano confounds me. The violin pleases me much more. It would be interesting to study the effects of European music on an Indian who had never heard it when he was young. Once, I asked an English musician to analyze for me some classical music and explain to me what elements make for the beauty of the piece. The difficulty is that really good music, whether of the East or the West, cannot be analyzed. Yes. And what deeply affects the hearer is beyond himself. The same uncertainty will always be there about everything fundamental in our experience, in our reaction to art, whether in Europe or in Asia. Even the red flower I see before me on your table may not be the same to you and me. And yet there's always going on the process of reconciliation between them, the individual taste conforming to the universal standard. 